0: Father, we thank you for what your word teaches us, that when we are weak, that's when we're strong. Um, We thank you that the Christian gospel is not about our greatness or our power or our majesty, but it's about our God who is gracious. And we thank you that you meet us in our times of need to lift us up. We thank you that when we are lowly, you pour out your grace. We thank you that you take the humble and you exalt them. And so, Lord, we pray that as we look at your word this morning, you would minister to us. Um, God, you, you know every person in this room, and as I stand before them right now, I just uh, request on their behalf that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon them to bring repentance and to increase faith and to give joy uh, to give hope and peace. Lord, I pray that as we look at your word that that you would speak to our hearts, you would encourage us, you would bless us. And we ask these things in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. So uh, I'd love for you to open your Bible with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. And if you don't have a Bible, I really would love for you to grab one off of our welcome table back there. Um, we're going to flip to a couple of different passages this morning. And this is the kind of thing that Uh, I would really love for you to be looking at the the verses with me. So we spent the last couple of weeks going through the pre-script of 1 Peter. Um, We've embarked on this journey to make our way through all of Peter's letter. And we looked at the first two verses in detail that tell us who wrote this letter and to whom Peter was writing who it was addressed to. And now today we're going to get into the body of the letter. So we're going to pick up in verse 3, and we're just going to read verses 3 through 5. So Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So although we do have a couple of verses that come before verse 3 here, I think it's appropriate for us to see this as the actual opening of Peter's letter. This is where Peter is really going to begin to teach as he offers wisdom and insight to the church that he writes to. And I want you to see where Peter begins. He begins by offering praise and blessing to God. In his address in verses 1 through 2, he already had us looking at the Trinitarian goodness of God, the foreknowledge of God, the Father, the sanctification of the Spirit, the sprinkled blood of Jesus Christ. And then as Peter launches into his letter, he begins, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what I'm getting at here is that Peter starts by setting our hearts and our minds upon God and giving God the praise and the adoration that he rightly deserves. In other words, Peter would have us see that God is the starting place God is where we must begin. Peter sees that God is at the center of all of this. Now that might seem obvious to you, but there is a nasty heresy that masquerades as Christianity, and I will use the word heresy, that one sociologist has aptly named therapeutic moralistic deism and I've used this phrase before, it was a while ago, but therapeutic moralistic deism. This is not actually Christianity, but it's present in many Christians, again, masquerading as Christianity. In fact, I would go so far as to say that therapeutic moralistic deism is what most people kind of have in mind when they think about Christianity these days. It's not biblical because it doesn't place God at the center of everything. It places man at the center. It does not begin by saying, I must bless God. It begins by saying, God should bless me. This false form of Christianity, I can see some of your faces, you're like, moralistic, therapeutic, what? Can you explain it? Yes. It's called therapeutic because like pop therapy, the goal of this kind of Christianity is to make people feel good about themselves, to make them feel good about their lives. It's moralistic because it teaches about the power of being a good person, the importance of improving yourself. And it's deistic because it has a vague God connected to it that exists to support people in the things that they do, to love them and cheer them on and make sure that they feel happy and secure and blessed. But I want you to see that the first thing that comes out of Peter's mouth as he really begins the body of his letter is an exclamation that God is deserving of all praise and adoration and glory. It's an effort at the beginning of his letter to get his audience to not think about themselves at all, but to stop doing what comes so naturally and think about God instead. Peter begins with praise to God because that is our proper posture before God as his creatures. Praise. We are naturally self-centered and broken by sin. And what we need is not for God to fulfill all of our wishes and our desires and to make us feel better. We need to lift our hearts up to this God in praise, to bless His name, to remember His goodness. God does not exist for you. You exist for Him. You were made for His glory. And so to begin with, we, at- we turn our attention to Him In praise and adoration. Now we might ask the question, why should we praise this God? Well, I could give a whole long discourse on that. That would have to be another lengthy sermon, but actually answering that question is where Peter goes next. And the wonderful thing is we do benefit. This God is worthy of praise because of what he has done for us in part. We are the recipients of his goodness and kindness, and therefore we should praise him. God has acted to bless us, and he's given us every reason to say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're not left out of the equation. We just come after God. We begin with him and we find our place flowing from his goodness. After blessing God, Peter writes in verse 3, according to his great mercy, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is how God has acted to bless us. Because of his own mercy, God has saved us. Someone tell me, who, who moved God to save us? Who compelled Him? Who forced Him? Who coerced Him? Who persuaded Him to save you? Who compelled Jesus to hang on the cross for your sake? We've never deserved God's blessing. God does not owe to us this kind of kindness. No, God was motivated to save you to love you, to redeem you, to adopt you purely by His own mercy. God alone moved God to save us. God could have chosen not to be merciful to you. Do you know that? He did not not have to pour out His love on you. He could have chosen to do otherwise. And so I would Have you remember the great wonder of the mercy of God? Don't ever lose that sense of wonder. Don't ever think about God's love and his mercy for you and kind of shrug your shoulders and think, oh yeah, okay, I get it. No, this is wonderful, good news. Do not ever let the beautiful love of God that you are undeserving of become so normal that it fails to draw forth from your heart praise and adoration for God and Peter tells us that God in his great mercy has caused us to be born again in my experience Christians talk about their salvation usually in one of two different ways Christians tend to either say like I got saved or I am saved or they say something like I'm born again or I was born again both of those terms are biblical Maybe you have one that you prefer when you talk about your faith in Jesus. It's true that we have been saved from the wrath of God. We've been saved from sin and evil. We've been saved from death and judgment. The Bible speaks about all of those things. We are saved. But I don't personally prefer to use that language and say I'm saved when I'm describing my Christian faith. Because I think it kind of sounds like, I got saved, and it's this thing, and it's done, and that's it. Like I was lost at sea, I was floating in the ocean, a boat came along, I got saved, and that whole event is just over and in the past. It's done. I don't really need to think about it anymore. Now again, that actually is one way that we can describe our salvation one way that is in fact biblical, Jesus has saved us from the wrath of God for our sins and that salvation was accomplished on the cross, it is finished. But I much prefer to talk about my Christian faith in the same term in which Peter describes it here in verse 3. That that by God's mercy, we have been born again into a living hope. The difference is that to be born is The beginning of a journey, isn't it? You know, as parents, if you have kids when they're born, you don't think, well, that's kind of the end. No, it's like the very beginning, like all the chaos is just about to start. And so our Christian faith is not something that happened to us once in the past when we got saved. No, our Christian faith is a daily, ongoing, living hope, a new life where we are learning to slowly grow up into maturity in Jesus Christ. And Peter got this language from Jesus. Turn with me to John chapter 3. I know you were there, but turn back, because I want you to see a couple of things here. This scene unfolds between Jesus and a man named Nicodemus. And there's a lot for us to discover here. It says in John chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. No one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? So here's a Jewish leader who wants to understand the things of Jesus. we got to give him some credit for that. And Jesus explains to him, the only way that you can see the kingdom of God is to be born again. That's it. And Nicodemus is totally lost, even though he must have been an intelligent man. And so he says, how can a person be born a second time, Jesus? What is this crazy teaching that you're talking about? And Jesus explains to him, Nicky boy, this is not about a physical death. This is, or a physical birth. This is a, about a spiritual birth. Birth by the spirit, Nick. And then Jesus says this really cryptic thing in verse 8 about the wind blowing, and you don't know where it comes from. Friends, this goes back to the great mercy of God that Peter was talking about. God, in His mercy, causes us to be born again not because of our efforts, not because of our work, not because of something that we can, can do, that we can do or can control, but because God has chosen to be merciful. Like the wind comes and blows from one direction to another. Just as the nature of the wind is something that is outside of our control, so too is the saving mercy of God that gives us this spiritual life. And unfortunately, Nicodemus still doesn't understand, so he says, how can these things be? And in response, Jesus rebukes him for being a teacher of Israel and not understanding the very basic nature of what it means to be a child of God, to be born again. Now, look at verse 5. Jesus says, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, when I ask Christians, like, what do you think that means? As I'm sitting with them doing discipleship, I, we come across this, I'm like, "What do you think this means?" Um, very few people can give me an answer. They don't know. Maybe it has to do with baptism, Maybe it has to do with, I, I don't know, like there's water breaking, you know, when birth happens. I don't know. And Jesus rebukes Nicodemus for not knowing. I guess it shouldn't be surprising that we wouldn't know if, if we as evangelicals don't pay very close attention to our Old Testament. Not even the teacher of Israel knew what Jesus was talking about, but he should have known. And I want you as a believer to know, so I'm going to make you turn to Ezekiel 36. That explains what it means to be born of water and the Spirit. And I'm sorry if you've hung around me much at all, then you've heard me talk about Ezekiel 36. I'm like a one-trick hat. That's Okay. In Ezekiel chapter 36, beginning in verse 25. Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 25. And there's no shame in uh, looking at your um, index, table of contents. That's okay. Ezekiel 36. This is the passage that Nicodemus the teacher of Israel should have had immediately come to mind when Jesus said, water and spirit gives birth to new life. Ezekiel 36 verse 25, God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is a prophecy. It's echoed in Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 31 that speaks of the new covenant that Christ is going to inaugurate by his blood. And it is speaking about what the kingdom of God will truly look like. Not merely a nation of ethnic people that will have an external appearance of belonging to God through things like circumcision and adherence to the law, but a people who will love God from the inside out, from the heart, from the spirit after being washed and cleansed of their sins. When we are born again, God himself sprinkles clean water on us to purify us from our sin so that we become children born into the spiritual kingdom of God, filled with the very spirit of God himself that we might do all that God commands us to do. You want to know why Israel was terrible in the Old Testament? Because they didn't have this. And verse 27 says that after doing this work of cleansing and filling with the Spirit and giving us a new heart, what? God will cause us to keep His rules, to walk in His statutes. So Christians are not people that are merely saved, my friends. We are spiritually born again into this new life. A life of obedience and righteousness. Obedience and righteousness that doesn't even come from us. From our efforts or our good works. It comes from the Spirit of God in us, working to lead us in the way of Jesus. This is what it means to be born again. This is why this language is so meaningful. Now go back to 1 Peter. And I'm sorry, I'm going to frustrate you this morning because I'm going to make you turn one other place, but we'll get there in a minute. We're going to put some wrinkles in your Bible this morning. Back in 1 Peter chapter 1. Because in verse 3, Peter tells us that we're born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now this means that your Christian faith is not merely hope for when you die. It is a living hope. It does include hope for when you die because Jesus who died rose from the dead. But our hope is a living hope that is with us in this life as we walk the way of Jesus in obedience. And it carries forward even through physical death in this life into the life that is to be everlasting when we will be raised again with Jesus himself. And so Jesus lived his perfect life of obedience to God the Father, and we follow him. We follow him in this life and even through death into the resurrection. And you know, people will often comment, oh, you can't take it with you when you die. They don't really, like, think about how incredibly significant that statement is. But it's true. You can't take the car You can't take the property. You can't take all the little medals and achievements. You cannot take your money or your vacation home or anything of material value with you. It stays. Death is an end to all material things. None of it will matter anymore after you die. You won't even care what's on your tombstone. But you know what you can take with you? you can take with you your resurrection hope in the life everlasting. That you can take with you. The Spirit's new birth goes with you from this life into eternity. And at this point, I want to ask you a really important question. I want to challenge you with a question. And it may seem very simple at first, but I want you to really think about this. Here's the question. Do you actually believe in the resurrection? Do you actually believe in the resurrection? I do not mean just as like an idea. I do not mean, do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? That's not what I mean. That is an important question. In order to be a Christian, you must believe that Jesus rose from the dead in order to be born again. But when I ask you, do you really believe in the resurrection, my friends? What I mean is, do you place all of your hope, all of your hope in this single truth. Do you really believe it? Do you live your life as if the only thing that really matters is the life everlasting? Do you really believe in the resurrection? Are you caught up and concerned about the things of this world which is perishing? Or are you living for that eternal kingdom the spiritual kingdom into which you have already now been born by the Spirit, born again as a child of God. Only what is done in this life for the glory of Jesus and for that kingdom will last. Nothing else will matter. Nothing. And that's where Peter goes next. He calls us to look forward to the resurrection hope that we have ahead of us. Verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, an inheritance is a benefit that you receive that you didn't work for or earn. One time I got this amazing email and it said that I uh, was a relative of a Nigerian prince, and there was this inheritance that was waiting for me, and all I had to do was wire $3,000 to these attorneys in Nigeria, and then they would set up all the paperwork, and then I would receive this inheritance. It was like millions of dollars. And you know, unfortunately, I couldn't come up with the $3,000 for the wire transfer. But I heard some other people got an email like that too. Obviously, it's a scam. I'm joking, okay? I'm glad you laugh. But the point is, Peter is not joking. He's not scamming. He's being entirely serious here about the inheritance that awaits those of us who have been born again into this spiritual kingdom. We are set to receive all of the riches of the kingdom of God. When we finish the race of this life and we step into the kingdom that awaits us, where we are told that God himself is keeping for us the riches of Christ Jesus, imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Now, there's a lot of places we could go in the Bible to learn about this inheritance, but I think a particularly powerful place to go is to the first couple chapters of Revelation. So turn there with me. In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, and I'm going to just make you read with me a couple of verses. We'll go quick. But in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, Jesus himself speaks to seven different churches and he gives to them a picture of our eternal inheritance. And he expresses the importance of living this born-again life and being faithful to the end. So, Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it that no one knows except the one who receives it. Go down to verse 26. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Go to chapter 3, verse 5. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Go down to verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. The new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven And my own new name. Verse 21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Now I will be honest and tell you, I do not know what all of this means. Um, I don't think even the best Bible commentary knows what all of this means. This refers to some mysteries that are part of this treasure that we are set to receive in our eternal inheritance. One day we will understand. But a lot of this we can understand. Everlasting life, signified by the tree of life, power and authority to have dominion like Adam and Eve were supposed to rule and reign. A new identity. A new identity. A name not filled with all the shame and disappointment and sadness that you might already describe yourself with. No, a new identity clothed in the righteous garments of Christ. Never again plagued by sin or sadness or shame or sorrow. Recognition for our faithfulness God will say to you who are faithful, well done, good and faithful servant. I am proud to call you my own. A share in the kingdom of God as we become pillars showing forth the glory of God. Even a seat with him on his throne. And all of that is kept for us undefiled and unfading. Nothing can diminish, destroy, distract what God has prepared for those who love him. A while back, we used to go with my in-laws to a beach house in San Diego each year. Beautiful place. We were very spoiled. I'm so grateful for their kindness. But this beach house had recently been remodeled. But you know what? You could see, even on a newly remodeled beach house in this world that we live in that's so fallen, little spots of rust on the metal, little places of paint beginning to chip off, the destructive effect of the salty sea air creating stains on the glass, The steps down to the water destroyed by the buffeting waves. Everything in this world, everything in this life is constantly falling apart. You see it everywhere. But Peter would have us look to the kingdom yet to come where no rust causes decay, where nothing fades or crumbles. Can you imagine it? No dust on your books, on your bookshelves. No gardens with weeds, tools with no rust, houses with no repairs, bodies with no aches, a kingdom with no wars, wealth with no inflation, work with no frustration, a family with no division. That's all kept and waiting for you. All the blessings and treasures we have in this world cannot even begin to compare with what God keeps undefiled and unfading for us. All right, I know I'm long, but maybe you noticed a little discrepancy between what we read in Revelation and what we read from what Peter tells us. Did you notice it? In Revelation, Jesus quite emphatically tells us that the inheritance waits for those of us who conquer and endure to the end and are faithful. Whereas Peter says... This is all kept in heaven waiting for us, us who are being guarded by God's power. So then which is it? Is it our effort to conquer or God's power to guard? Well, it's both. Some of you are nodding your head. Yes, that's the correct answer. Which is it? Yes. We are not totally passive in this spiritual life into which God has given us birth, Although the inheritance that that is ours is not riches that we have earned, that's true, still we must fight and work and labor, putting God's power to work in our lives to do what He has accomplished for us, to obey and be victorious. We must be faithful to the end. And of course, that would not be possible in our own power or by our own strength But last week we talked about how it is possible if you want to go back and review that message or Ezekiel 36 reminds us by grace, by grace we conquer because grace is God's power in us to do what we cannot do on our own. Grace is the spirit of God at work in us to transform us as we work and grace has been multiplied to us through Christ, given to us from the Father who loves us through the power of the Spirit in us by the blood of Jesus, which covers us. We're guarded through faith, which is to say that we don't have faith in our own work. We would fail, but we work by faith through the power of God, confident in the sufficiency of Christ. Led forward by the Spirit, according to the foreknowledge of the Father, surrounded by the aid of the church. See, all of the provision that we need has already been made for us by God's grace. God has caused us to be born again. God has raised Jesus from the dead. God has given us life by the Spirit. Jesus declared the work was finished on the cross. As he passed through this life in the resurrection, he made a way for us and went to prepare a home for us. God's life-giving Spirit has already been poured out on us. The love of God has elected us. The kingdom is already established and every provision has been made. And so then, my friends... It only falls to you and to me to be faithful, to finish the journey home, to put to use all the supplies that we've been given, and we can be sure that when by God's grace this journey is ended, the kingdom will be there. There it will be, standing in all of its greatness and glory, eager to receive us. And in that day then, finally, the fullness of our salvation, the riches of our inheritance will finally be known to us.